want to share with you, as if, in case you don't know, this is different. Um, we have Vacation Bible School, in case you are a little slow uh, in what's going on. And, and so in that same vein, I want to deviate from the normal course, course and not uh, talk about Genesis, but actually go to Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verse 11, is the memory verse uh, for this week in Vacation Bible School. And you'll see some of it uh, there on the sides to where it says, teach me your way, O Lord. And uh, what I wish to do is just share this chapter with you and help you to understand the context of what this verse is about. And I think you're going to learn some very important lessons about prayer as we go. The book of Psalms is really a book of prayers. And uh, I encourage you to read the book and pray the book. I've often gone through the book of Psalms and I always go back to this book. I, you know, like many of you, will try the uh, reading the Bible through the year, and when I get to the book of Psalms, I just get stalled. And uh, what I often do is say, you know what, I'm going to forget reading 10 chapters. I'm just going to read one chapter a day, and I'm going to spend the rest of my year reading this chapter, uh, chapter by chapter. And one of the best things I've done is as I've read it, I think about it, and then I make a conscious effort to pray the psalm and just share it back to, to, to the Lord in praise of Him. And you'll find uh, that this is a powerful prayer uh, in Psalm 86. I just encourage you to incorporate that in your daily walk, in your life, to, to, as you read the book, uh, to pray the book. And uh, as we go, you'll find in this chapter there are two main questions that are answered in this chapter. One is, what do I pray for? As we look at the prayer of David in Psalm 86, you'll find various, in fact, 15 requests uh, that David prays. And then the other question answered in Psalm 86 is, why do we pray it? Or why do I pray at all? You ever wondered that? Why should I pray? We can think of a thousand reasons in any given day why we shouldn't pray. I'm just too busy. In fact, we're not certain exactly what all it does or whether we should do it or not. And after all, doesn't God know everything anyway? He already knows our needs. Why should I vocalize these things? Why should I pray? And so I think Psalm 86 speaks to this, and they're involved in... Are they, they revolve around the character of man and the character of God. And these two come together and produces a great need for prayer. And so we're going to go through this just verse by verse. And we're going to, in each verse, look at those two questions. And so if you'd like to follow along and write notes, I encourage you to take that note paper out in your bulletin and maybe divide it in half and put on one side, what should I pray for? And on the other side, why should I pray it? And I think it'll uh, give you a good structure in, in what we're doing this morning. And so, uh, in honor of this passage, as we read it together, let's stand, recognizing the authority of God by our standing as we read it. If you'll read silently as I read it aloud to you, Psalm 86. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy, you are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. And the day of my trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 
for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your mercy toward me. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me. And a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me. Have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. You may be seated. Well, as we look at verse 1, we find the very first request. What do we pray for? Verse 1, we pray that God will hear us. You notice that is repeated in various ways in this chapter, but the first verse says, Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me. Why do we ask God? What, what is the reason for that request? Well, simple. I am poor and needy. I'm poor and needy. David doesn't come to God on the basis of, God, you owe me something. Because I'm such a great person, you owe me to hear me. No, he comes and, and, and begs for mercy at the very beginning, saying, I am poor and needy. In fact, this reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5. At this uh, beginning sermon, Jesus says uh, the Beatitudes. You remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are, blessed are. Uh, and the very first one is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we see Jesus echoing this prayer uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor and needy. I, I think a wonderful way of looking at this is blessed are the bankrupt spiritually. The spiritual bankrupt. Everybody knows when you're bankrupt, you have nothing to offer that person. So too, as we come before God, we need to understand that in our life, in our spirit, morally, we are bankrupt before God. And there's no good reason, because of who we are, that God should hear our prayer. Isn't that comforting? Well, but that's the truth of the matter when it comes down to it. And the best way to deal with that is to be honest with who you are before God. There is no good reason for God to hear your prayer except simply that you can appeal to some nature and characteristic of God. Go to Him and say, I am poor and needy. I need someone to lift me up. We come to verse 2. The request, preserve my life. What do we pray for? We pray, God, hear my prayer and preserve my life. I need your help to preserve me. And then verse 2, why? For I am holy. Well, didn't you just say you're bankrupt and now he's saying he's holy? What, what's the deal? Well, another way, and in fact a better translation of this, is to simply say, I am faithful. I am faithful. In other words, God, I belong to you. You notice how he says it in the next phrase? You are my God. I have no one else that I'm going to. I'm, I'm wholly trusting in you. I have no other Savior. And so, and so he says, in light of that, what's the third request? Save me. Save me. Why? Why should we hear that prayer? Why should God answer that prayer? Well, because I am your servant who trusts in you. I am your servant who trusts in you. There is a, a allegiance, a wholesale giving of this person to God. It's kind of like, uh, take care of your car. Why? Because it's your car. All right? It's 
my tool. And so you're, you're giving yourself to God and you ask him, save me, Lord. Why? Because I am yours. Now, in this verse 3, we have kind of the summary of all that's being said. Bow down, hear my prayer, preserve my life, save me. Verse 3, be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. And this is, that verse 3, kind of the capture of the, the entire chapter right here. That is the tenor of the whole chapter. God, give me mercy. And so he's seeking the mercy. Why? Because I cried to you all day long. In other words, I have no one else I'm going to. It is you and you alone that I desire and I appeal to for help in my life. Now, this appeal for mercy, let's, let's look a little bit about this. That Louis Palau, uh, Louis Palau uh, shared a story that kind of, uh, well, brings this to light a little bit. It's uh, referring back to the days of Napoleon and uh, a, a, a man was caught uh, committing a, a crime that he twice committed, was guilty of death. And before the sentencing was to take place, the mother of this man came to Napoleon and begged for mercy. Napoleon helped the mother understand this, this man has committed a crime twice and deserves death. The mother replied, I'm, I'm not asking for justice. I'm pleading mercy. In other words, she understood it was just. But she's not seeking justice, seeking mercy. Well, then she said, well, you know, your son doesn't deserve mercy. The mother replied by saying this, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is all I ask for. We need to understand that what we're asking for is not something that we deserve when we ask for mercy. But nonetheless, that's the whole uh, attribute of mercy is is something that we do not deserve. Now, verse 4, what do we ask for? We ask for mercy, we ask for God to hear us, we ask Him for His salvation, to preserve us. Verse 4, we rejoice, we ask that our, our soul is rejoiced, or bring joy to your servant. Have you ever had one of those days when you knew that you are going to be doing bad stuff that day? When you knew that it was not going to be a fun day? Every once in a while you have these, these agendas, these schedules, where you knew it was going to be miserable. Well, here's the good news. The joy of God is not based in the happenings of mankind, but is based in the relationship between you and God. It's relationship tied, not circumstance tied. And so David's praying, God, give me joy this day. Why? For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, or I set my hope upon you. Why should God answer our prayer? Because we set our hope on him. Not whether or not circumstances come the right way or whether or not we get to see somebody that day. We get joy and we set our hope on him because there is no one else that we appeal to for joy. Now verse 5, if you look at this. For you, Lord, are good, are kind, you're ready to forgive, and you're abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Why should we pray? Well, verse 4, or verse 5 speaks to why. Why do we pray? Why do we talk to God? Why do we appeal to Him? Because He's good, He's ready to forgive, He's abundant in mercy to all those who call upon Him. Now, let's look a little bit about what mercy means. Charles Finney uh, described mercy in, in this way, and he wanted us to understand that we're not confused mercy with mere goodness. Mercy is directly opposed to justice. Goodness may demand justice, but mercy asks that justice be put aside. The moment we trust in mercy, we give up at once and entirely all apologies and excuses. God is good. 
but he's more than good. He's merciful. Goodness, he could execute justice upon us and still be good. But instead, he gives us mercy and said, when we plead for mercy, we are forfeiting the right to make excuses for our sin. We can no longer say that this is just how we are. We can no longer say, well, this is a family quirk. I mean, losing temper is a family gene. We can't say that anymore. We are putting apologies and excuses away and say, God, have mercy on me. It is more than goodness that we are calling upon. I remember a story, or I've heard a story from uh, of the mayor, LaGuardia, in New York, of which the airport is named after. In the, in the 1930s, he was a uh, well-respected mayor. And uh, one such evening, he uh, went to the night court system and decided that he would hear some, courts, uh, some cases in night court. While he was there, a grandmother was brought to him accused of stealing bread, of which he pleaded guilty toward and stated, I had to steal bread so that I can feed my children and my grandchildren. Well, the mayor, LaGuardia, said, you know what? There must be justice that's met here. Justice demands a fine and fined her for $10, in which case... She said, I have no $10. I do not have $10 to be able to pay this fine. So he asked for a hat in which he took $10 out of his own wallet and put it into the hat and then said, every person in this court is fined 50 cents for living in a society that requires a grandmother to steal bread. So that grandmother walked away with her fine paid and $49.50. What do you have there? You have someone giving mercy. Justice said there must be a punishment. Mercy said we will uh, refer this from her, the guilty party, and place it upon someone else. And so that's what we have here when we're praying for mercy. Now, verse uh, 6, we have repeated again. God, hear my prayer. And verse 7, in the day of trouble, I will call upon you. Why do we pray? Because of verse 7. For you will answer me. Why do we pray? Because we have a God who will answer us. Who will hear our prayer and speak to us. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 7 verse 7. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. James 4 2 says you do not have because you do not ask. Friends, you have a God that will hear your prayer and answer you in return. And so that's what... Uh, Psalm 86, 7 says. Now we go to verse 8. Why, why should we do this? Why should we pray? One, because we have a God who hears us. But in verse 8 and 9, verse 10, we have a God who can do something about it. Notice the praise that's found here. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. This is the word Adonai, the Lord of the universe. Nor are there any works like your works. In other words, you're unique in your character and your ability. All nations whom you've made shall come and worship or honor before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Why? Because you're great and you do wondrous things. You see, he is acknowledging something about God. If you, if you study, if you're an educated person, one of the goals of education is for you to know the greatness of God. When you study math and get into the complications of math and how things work in geometry, 
Why do you do that? So that you can understand how great God is when he had made this world and the laws that it runs by. When you study physics, is to study these, the, the laws of the universe that God has given us to understand the greatness of our God. When you study history, you see how God has worked throughout history and it is to point to God's role of bringing a redeemer to this world and a need for a redeemer as we study the wars and all uh, the, the tragedies that have occurred in history. Uh, when you study geography, it is to study the land that God has made and understand the greatness of our Lord. When you look in astronomy and study the astronomy, it is to see the, sea, the skies and all that God has made in the stars and understand the greatness of this world. The problem with history or with education in America is that we have said, you know what, look at the greatness of mankind. And we use education to enhance our own uh, selves instead of acknowledging the greatness of our Lord. And so we have had a, a, a tragedy in that. You notice what it says in verse 9. He says, All nations whom you've made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. I think what we have witnessed this morning in listening uh, to a worship song being uh, given to us, proclaiming worthy is the Lamb in English and in Russian, is a taste of things to come in heaven. He says, look, there is going to be a day and time when nations will glorify your name and worship before you, O Lord. We see this given to us in Revelation. Why do we pray? Why do we worship God through prayer? It is so that we can practice for heaven. It is to get ready for the worship that is to come. I think that when we get to heaven, that we will not be all one language, that we will keep intact the different languages that have come our way because the Bible does state at the end times in heaven, in the heavenly realm, that there will be many languages, many tongues, praising the Lord, saying, worthy is thy lamb. I think the one difference is that we can actually all understand it uh, in that moment of time. And so we have a taste of things to come in verse 8 and 9, to know the greatness of our God. Why do we pray? Because God is great in all of the earth. John Piper has rightly described this verse and said, it is utterly relevant for everything in life to know the greatness of our God. He says, if we could see the greatness of God, we would not be so greedy and covetous. If we could see the greatness of our God, our eyes wouldn't stray after lustful images and thoughts. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get angry at our children so easily. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't pout and get hurt so easily in our marriages. If we could see the greatness of our God, we wouldn't worry about our looks so much. If we saw the greatness of our God, we wouldn't spend time watching mindless and sordid and defiling television programs. If we saw the greatness of our God, we wouldn't get so discouraged with evil and good and godlessness of our culture. If we saw the greatness of our God, we wouldn't get in, give in to our appetites and overeat and boredom and depression. Understanding that is the knowledge of the greatness of our God that our hearts are made for and born toward. And when we go and study the greatness of our God, it is amazing how all of life comes into right perspective because we know who God is and we start living and serving Him. Friends, the greatest things we can teach our children and teach our grandchildren is the greatness of who our God is. And I pray that Vacation Bible School this past week has been a touch, has been a part in teaching them the greatness of our Lord. But friends, you know how it's best done? It's done through you and your lifestyle. When a child looks at you and understands what you believe is the greatness of God by your lifestyle, then they get a clue about what they are to serve and, what, and to whom they are to worship. 
You know, I've mentioned before that our society worships sports, and it, it is unfortunate uh, that we often play at our worship and worship our play. And so we see that instead of, of bringing worship to the forebear, we bring sports to the forebear. And I'm not, I enjoy sports myself, but we need to keep in perspective that sports is not an avenue to bring greatness to ourselves and to put ourselves on TV. That sports is nothing but enjoying the gift of God that God has given to us. And we, if we teach our children that it's all about the play and the sports and not about the God who created them to do these things, they have missed it entirely. And so we must teach our children that God is great and how we prioritize our lifestyles. And so we rightly go to verse 11. If God is great, then what do we pray for? We pray for this. God, teach me your way, O Lord. Why? Because he's great. And this is a great way to go. And notice what he says in verse 11. And I will walk in your truth. You ever wondered why you don't know how to walk with the Lord? Perhaps it's because we've said in our own heart, God, I don't care. I want to go my own way. Jesus often asked in the New Testament, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What is he saying? Those who have a heart, a yearning to know and obey, those are the ones I will teach. And so, in times of crisis, it's not just say, God, help me, but also, God, I'm yours. Teach me your way. And whatever crisis we may be in, be in, God, teach me how to walk in this crisis. I will do it. And then verse 11, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. As I read this, the first time I read it, I thought, this, this, this echoes in my soul. And it keeps coming back to me. Unite, God, give me a, a new heart. Give me a united heart to fear your name. You see, the problem is that you, you can hear me, and you may get glimpses of the greatness of God through nature and the things that you study, the things that you learn about through the word of God. And you think, yeah, God is great, God is great. But in the every day of our life, here's the problem. God is great, and so am I. God is great, and so am I. We may not think that, but we'll act that way. Because we'll hear God's instructions, and instead of doing it, we go our own way. What are we doing? We're telling God, okay, yeah, you're great, but not as great as me, because my way is better than your way. Don't feel bad about that, because we're all that way. You're born that way. I'm born that way. And I can hear things like this and think, yeah, oh, yeah, let's, let's worship God. But there's a, a side within me that desires my own way. The Bible says it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's us. But here's the good news. God can change our hearts. He can slowly work in us a new desire. We pray, God, give me an undivided, undivided mind to fear you. You know, remember those Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It goes on, in the same list of Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does that mean, pure in heart? It is to be undivided, not to be double-minded, double-hearted. Blessed are the pure in heart, undivided heart. They 
see the greatness of God. They want to see the greatness of God. And Jesus says, and they'll get what they want. They desire God, and God will let them see it. That is a beautiful uh, beatitude that we have. And it's echoed from Psalm 86, verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Oh, I long for the day in my own life and the day in our church that we say, you know what? I don't have to sing. I want to sing. I don't have to pray. I want to pray. I don't have to worship with other believers. I want to worship with other believers. I don't have to read the Bible. I want to read the Bible. You know, what, what would it do to you if I just shared with you, oh, man, i got to preach for you again. Seems like every Sunday it comes around, i got to preach, man. Would that do much joy for you? Would, that, would you want to listen to that? You know, sometimes we have the same attitude, though. Oh, i got to go to church. I gotta hear that guy preach. <laughs> I gotta hear him say, I gotta sing again. Um, 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 um. God forgive us. God forgive us of a heart that fails to worship. Worship is not something you have to do. Worship, by its definition, is we get to worship. We get to sing of the greatness of our Lord. And the problem is that we fail to see the greatness of our God. And therefore, we fail. To worship. I long for the day where we'll even come on Wednesday night and listen to John Boozer teach us how to better worship him by song. Is that too much to ask? Something that we need to teach our children to do. Friends, your children will not naturally want to sing to God. They'll sing anything they'll hear on the radio, but to teach them to sing to God, something you've got to do. And it's not enough to send them to church and let them learn how to sing. Do they ever hear you sing? You don't have to be good. You don't own house, for crying out loud. It's okay. It's your house. You sing if you want to. The question is, do you want to? Verse 12. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart. (laughs) You know what he's doing here? Verse 12. Verse 13, he's, he's echoing back to what he just said in verse 9 and 10. He says, all nations are going to worship you. All nations are going to glorify you. But it's not enough for me to just talk about all the other nations. Verse 12, verse 13, I'm going to do it too. I'm not going to let me just talk about them. I'm going to do it. Verse 12, I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all of my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Why is he going to do that? Because all nations are going to glorify God forever. So I'm a part of that, and I'm going to start practicing. For great is your mercy toward me. That, that loving kindness, that word mercy is loving kindness. And you've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Why do we pray? Because God is great. Why do we pray for mercy? Because he has given us mercy and delivering us from death. As given to us in verse 13. And then verse 14. Oh God, the proud have risen against me. A mob of violent men assault my life and not set you before them. What made these people so wicked? So violent. He gives us the clue right here in the first part of 14 and the last part. The proud. The proud. They do not consider the greatness of God. How do you know? Because they have no regard for God. They have not set you before them. 
How is that demonstrated? It's not whether or not the name Jesus crosses their lips. It's done in their lifestyle. Does their lifestyle reflect that God is great? Does it weigh toward the greatness of the Lord, or does it weigh toward the greatness of themselves and the fact that they do whatever they want? It is the greatness of the Lord that changes us. And these people, unfortunately, are blind to God's greatness, and all they do is see themselves. But verse 15, but you, O Lord, are God full of compassion. Let me talk about the mercy for a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and by nature we were children under wrath, as the others were also. That's you and me. Every single one of us, that describes us. But notice what it says, verse 4. But God, who is abundant in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace you are saved. Before ever we were saved by grace, we had experienced the mercy of God to not give us what we deserve as being children of wrath because of our proud, self-centered view on life. And so, verse 15, God, you are full of compassion. You know that compassion? The difference between that and sympathy is action. He's not just a God of sympathy. He's not just a God of pity. What good would that do? I don't need a God of sympathy and God of pity. He just feels bad when I'm condemned into hell apart from him. I need a God of compassion who will act and make the difference. Henry Newman described it this way. He said, compassion is hard because it requires the inner disposition to go with others to the place where they are weak where they are vulnerable, where they are lonely, where they are broken. It is not a spontaneous response to suffering. What we desire most is to do away with suffering by fleeing from it or finding a quick cure for it. Compassion goes with that person who's troubled into that place and acts to make a difference. We're gracious. He's long-suffering. Robert Ingersoll was a famous atheist and lecturer earlier part of the century. And he would have this experiment, and he would say, God does not exist, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to put my pocket watch out here. I'm going to let five minutes go by, and I'm going to ask God to strike me down dead within these five minutes. And he just stopped talking. For five minutes, there was silence. That's a long time in a, in a speech. And after five minutes up, he would say, I just proved that God does not exist. Well, as they were leaving, of course, they would bring Palaws, and uh, a man talked to an older woman. He said, well, he certainly gave us a lot to think about, didn't he? She sure did. She said, she sh he sure did. He told me that you cannot exhaust the mercy of God in just five minutes. He is long-suffering. Understanding that we need the long-suffering of the Lord. And then notice verse 16. What do we pray for? Pray for God to turn to us and have mercy on us. Why do we do that? Because of verse 15. All of who God is, that he's full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. Why do we pray? Because God is this. And we ask for strength to our for us. Verse 17, he says, show me a sign for good. 
that those who hate it may see it and be ashamed. He asked for a sign that God is good toward him. Why did he ask that? Because, verse 17, dear Lord, you've helped me and comforted me because of what God has helped me in the past. But I want to talk about that, that sign for good. Sign for good. God, give some proof that you're good toward me. Well, you know, it's interesting. Jesus, later on in the New Testament, someone asked him for a sign to prove that he was Messiah. He said, I'm not going to give you any more signs. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. What was he referring to? It was the fact that Jonah was swallowed in a big fish for three days and then spit out. What was he saying? He says, you're going to look to me. I'm going to be your sign. When they put me on the cross, when they put me in the grave for three days, when they come again, that will be your sign. And that is the sign of goodness. I came across this week the story of Irina Sindler. Someone shared this information to me. Irina Sindler was a nurse in Poland. In 1939, she was working at a Catholic school as a nurse when the Germans came in and took over Poland and there rounded up the Jews and put them into the ghettos. She, as a nurse, decided to do some things about this and uh, she would go into these ghettos for treatment and, and giving treatment, and she decided that she would smuggle the children and convince the parents to, to let her take the children. And there she uh, would find various ways of smuggling them out of the ghetto and putting them in Christian homes. Uh, and she trained her dogs to bark when, when the guards were, were questioning her so that instead of noticing the cries of the children, that they would be distracted by the barking of the dogs. In 1943, Irina Sindler was arrested and there tortured. But she did not give up any of the names. In fact, she wrote down the names of the children, all 2,500 of them, wrote the names on a piece of paper and put it in a jar, and buried the jar underneath an apple tree. Her goal was to one day get that jar back and reunite the families together. Unfortunately, many of the parents were dead by that time. She was in an interview, asked about this, and this is what she said. When I saw what was going on, I decided to act. Friends, you and I have a God who is merciful. And when he saw what was going on, he decided to act. Remember Isaiah 53, verse 6? All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all. He decided to act. Friends, we have a God who is merciful. We can pray to him because he's merciful, because he's great, because he can do great things, because he can hear our prayer and will hear our prayer, and because he's helped us in the past. And friends, we have a, re a redeemer who did not just write down our names in a jar. He wrote our names into the palms of his hand and engraved upon his heart the names of us all, and if we will come to him and say, God, I am poor and needy, he will give us mercy. Let me ask you, there is a redeemer available, but is he your redeemer? We have a great God. I encourage you to pray. Say, God, teach me your ways, and I will walk in them. Unite my heart to fear your name.